Welcome to Out of the Blank. another episode of out of the blank podcast here's a special guest we're going to talk about my favorite subject at least as of recent it's my favorite rob can you please introduce yourself to everyone out there listening yes rob or sometimes known as bob clark uh host of the lone gunman podcast and co-host of quick hits a jfk assassination news and notes podcast as well um recently been doing about 200 episodes of the lone gunman for the past eight years and been doing quick hits for about three with my buddy Doug Campbell, who hosts the Dallas Action Podcast. Is the lone gunman title name, is that ironic because you don't actually believe that it's a lone gunman? Yeah, it was meant to be an ironic title because I was doing the show by myself at the very beginning of everything. Uh, the original idea was me and my friend Doug wanted to do a show together. But at the time, we wanted to start doing it. We Tech, technologically, we weren't there yet, you know, to make it happen and sound decent. So we just kind of each started our own respective shows. And then when we were able to do it together, we did, but we still kept our other shows. What, where do you particularly focus, like out of all the topics or probably all aspects of the case that you've really kind of either touched upon or dove deeper in, where do you focus when it comes to the Kennedy assassination? Um, i tell you what really interests me is uh thomas beckham are you familiar with him at mm -hmm. all no all right we can get into him a little bit too on the show but he he's one of the most fascinating characters in, in the whole thing um buell frazier as well kind of what was going on in the school book depository um just really fan it just makes me <laughs> really really think about what exactly was going on that day you know well, it's trying to like understand the personalities involved in the case. And I think a lot of people don't know how interesting it is. And I think when you get interested in it, you start realizing there's just a lot of stuff. I don't believe that it was a lone gunman. I believe it was way more. There was a conspiracy to kill JFK, but there was a lot of issues when I like, I'm not a JFK fanboy. I'm not like how everyone like thinks like he was the best president. I just don't know him. Like I, I see some of the stuff in his change of his personality throughout his, I would say his, uh, you know, his job and everything. That's a nice shirt. Uh, is he smoking a joint? What is that? <laughs> I think he's vaping. I don't uh, know. But it, it like for me, what I saw was you, you had three people that day that were killed um, or you had three people in general in the whole case that were killed, at least when it comes to just Oswald, Tippett, and then you have um, Mr. Kennedy and they all had kids. So you got to look at it from an aspect of, OK, now we have to see who's right, who's wrong, what's real, what's not. And then like what I found was interesting was the I found the resume for Oswald and also his interview where the guy talked about interviewing this boy and like would sit down and he would ask him like, how do you want the job? You know, how'd you get these connections? And it, to me, that's the interesting part about it. Like I just start seeing like I'm getting a better aspect of this character that they pin to be this crazy nut job. Yeah. Um, that's something I never understood either. You know, like no matter how bad things were for somebody and, and a good way to approach the case is to kind of put yourself 
in, in their shoes back at that time. And, you know, a lot of people do forget that Oswald uh, was a father of two. He had just had a baby, you know, like a month before the assassination. And are things really that bad that you're going to throw, potentially throw your whole life away to shoot at the president of the United States? I mean, you know, that's something you really got to think about. You know, as a parent, you know, I, I can't even fathom doing that. No matter how ideologically opposed to someone or something that I am, I mean, you're essentially saying, okay, you might get away with it. Chances are you're not, you know, doing something like that in public with hundreds of people around, you know, the chances of you getting away with it are slim to none. So you're essentially, you know, you're going to throw your life away for, for what? I thought it was really that bad. I you thought know. of the lone nut response to that, which would be like, maybe Marina was on his back too much. And he just needed to get away. <laughs> you know, well, then just leave her. I mean, you know, there's so many other things that would make sense. You know, of course, nothing about this case makes sense um, when you really look at it. But, you know, were things really that bad between him and Marina and, and his thought about that kind of life with her and the kids? where he just didn't care anymore enough to throw his own life away. Essentially. I just don't buy it. Well, the always example I hear, which was the argument, which was that people, the reason why people think there's conspiracy is that they couldn't believe that their president could be killed like that. And I'm like, I think it's a lot more than that. There's a lot of things there that aren't making sense, like certain protocols that weren't followed. There's just weird areas that either they don't get addressed or the uh, people who believe it was one guy don't really talk about but they'll refute a bunch of points that you'll make and they'll like pick and clean it and i'm like i mean i don't think this is an admiration for maybe in some cases an admiration for jfk but if you really look at it there's just a lot of like really strange and really like you can say coincidence to a point but when you see like the form 1035 960 or you look at that and it says from the warren commission given to every media outlet saying like any new evidence that comes out against the warren commission make sure that you label it as a conspiracy then at the bottom it says destroy this document when no longer needed you're like all right hang on a second Every conspiracy person out there just was like, holy shit, because that's what we've been saying for the longest time with media sources today, that everybody's pitching a narrative. And then there's your evidence for it. Yeah. I mean, you can look at, like I said, even today, I, I think a lot of people forget today, at least today, that the CIA even exists, you know, unless they're watching a Mission Impossible movie. I mean, it flies so far under the radar nowadays with aut autonomy and no oversight that you probably don't, wouldn't even know it exists. You know, if I didn't live an hour away from them, <laughs> I probably would forget about them a lot. But, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, you know, when the, when the church committee was doing their thing and, and the Senate and the House were really trying to put some oversight on them, it just seems like after the, after the HSCA and moving into the 80s, it was just like, whoosh, okay, you know, moving forward, the CIA has <laughs> unlimited budget, no oversight, and they can do what they want, and you'll never hear a peep out of them. You know what I mean? Do you think that the House Select Committee, like, do you I – have, I have, I guess, conflicting feelings about them. I think they did a lot of amazing work in the beginning, but then, like, we're still – like, they're past due on when we're supposed to have all those documents released. I think they did great work 
trying to get a lot of this, like the ARB did great work too. But then it seemed like either they came across something where they realized it could be a threat to national security and then nobody ever talked. And that's always what I hear about like the doctors from Parkland or all these people that have interviewed all these people. They say, once the documents come out, you'll know what we know. And I'm like, did you guys come across something with this idea of like, I'm going to make sure that we get all the information out there. Then you saw something that was kind of serious and you were like, we can't let the public know because like, we're still in this position where you have people bickering back and forth over really small details. And it's like, they go, what are the release documents going to have? I'm like, I have no clue. I've heard so much stuff. I don't know what's real in this case. Did they do an autopsy before the original autopsy? Is Jack Ruby really this puppy loving guy that they say he is? I don't think so. I hear some crazy stories, man. Yeah. Uh, you know, with the documents, it, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, we'll just have to wait and see until what is it 20 2037 i think it's when the warrant rest of the warrant commission documents are going to come out um and you know with the releases you know you got a, a little bit of stuff in the past couple of years but no smoking guns i don't, I don't think there's going to be any smoking guns they've had enough time to to destroy whatever they wanted to destroy uh you know what they didn't destroy at the time uh to make sure that nobody would ever see it but you know, as far as any smoking guns, I just don't think we're going to have them. I think it's going to be left to either some, some you know, deathbed confession, which we've had a few, but, um, or something, something else meaningful from, you know, people that were there and involved, um, or somebody stumbles across something, um, or people just finally put the pieces of the puzzle together and, and figure it out beyond a, beyond a doubt. Did you go into it thinking that there was conspiracy? Like, have you had, like, I've had moments where I'm reading the Warren Commission and then I'll be like, maybe it was a lone nut. And then, like, I start seeing other things where I have to ground myself and be like, hold on, there's conspiracy. Just don't lose sight of that. And then I'm looking, like, I'm trying to look at everything impartial and be in the middle on everything. I just, trying to figure out what the historical record should be or what I, I think I want it to be. Not I wouldn't say what I want it to be, but what I want to be correct. I just want it to be right. And when I start coming across documents and realizing how secret everything is and documents we don't have, it's kind of like, where's the truth then? Yeah, I feel the exact same way. And, you know, my, my thoughts on the case have wavered throughout the years. I mean, I've been interested in it for probably 30 years. Um, and that goes back to, you know, high school and about the same time that, uh, the Oliver Stone movie was coming out and, uh, you know, Crossfire was big. Um, and then just over the years looking into different aspects of it and the thought does come across and you have to look at it, you know, okay, well, what if Oswald really did this? And, and you try to look at the evidence objectively and you try to look at the testimonies objectively and, you know, nothing really makes sense, but, you know, I've talked to, I've talked to as lone nutters on my show. I like to be able to have a, a dialogue, you know, I'm not going to sit there and have a, a pissing contest or a pissing match with somebody who is just irrationally, you know, supporting a lone nutter. You know, if you come on my show and that's your, that's your frame of mind, then you better be able to back it up something um, other than just because I think so, you know, what about when we talk about Frazier? Frazier talked about seeing Oswald walk into the book depository building with a long uh, 
like a long package, you know, something that was he was kind of holding at his side. And people would suggest that was the gun that he was planning. But then I've heard statements from the guy who worked at the book depository building who saw Oswald come into the building and said he didn't have a package at all. So you're having like these conflicting statements is like, I don't know who I know Frazier's apparently his best friend. I know he drove him there that day um, to the store. But where you mentioned Frazier in the beginning, what what about Frazier? Did you notice or anything about him or the person you mentioned before that that you find interesting? Well, I find it interesting that he was he was arrested that day, given a polygraph examination. Um, and we don't have it's one of the missing documents. There is no. Frazier polygraph test with the results or the questions asked. They just say he passed it, you know, and that's just supposed to be good enough. But for the package, you know, I've, I've kind of looked into everything and, and Frazier's always stated that it's been about two feet long, somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, 24 to 28 inches, which even when you break a rifle down, the Carcano, it's, it's at least 34 inches of, you know, of stock, you know, that you can't break it down any further than that. So either Frazier was lying about the length of the package from the get-go and he knew Oswald had a rifle and he knew Oswald took that rifle into the school book depository or Oswald had a two foot package uh, with curtain rods in it. There's, there's no other answer, you know, um, and there's been some things over the years that kind of make you think that, well, maybe Frazier was lying. You know, it doesn't mean that Oswald was on the sixth floor shooting a rifle. It just means that maybe Oswald got that rifle into the depository somehow, some way. I mean, the rifle didn't walk in there on its own. You know what I mean? Um, so if Frazier knew that Oswald took a rifle into that building, and then you, you're the guy that gave him a ride to work. And then the president ends up getting killed. That might be impetus enough for you to lie about it, you know, as, as, as not an accessory after the fact, you know, kind of like the Sylvia Marble. But it's just hard to say, man. I mean, I, I was waiting for so long for that dude to write a book. And he finally did. And it was straight trash. What did he write about? And, uh, well, the name of the book was Steering Truth, which he's done throughout the years. You know, he's a, it, it, he's very notorious. If you go back and look at the HC, HSCA investigators notes uh, of them trying to track him down and just talk to him, he was giving them the runaround um, for weeks and months on end. He did not want to talk to them. Um, and then you look at the the O'Toole book, Georgia O'Toole book, uh, the assassination tapes, uh, you know, if you believe in the, the PCS machine or the, or the PCR machine, whatever it's called, um, the, the audio lie detector, um, he found that Frazier's statements, um, that he wasn't being truthful. And he had trouble tracking Frazier down and talking to him. Um, it's just odd behavior, you know, he, Frazier's really never been interviewed and asked the hard questions. He, he always pops up to do a, a fluff news piece, you know, for the Channel 5 News or, you know, I drove Oswald to work that day and blah, blah, blah. 
um, where he, he, you know, he, he recounts his little tale, but as far as being pressed and held to the fire and being asked legit questions, hasn't really happened. Did you look at Dallas politics back then and just to see what Dallas time period was like? I mean, because I tried to look at it and I've heard stories about like a lot of people on the Dallas police force were like known KKK members. And then a lot of people, maybe their statements might have been kind of skewed a certain way to fit the narrative because of an aspect of people were just didn't want to be associated with a cop killer. Or I mean, that's what he was getting pinned on. And as much as everyone knows him for killing Kennedy or allegedly killing Kennedy, the real evidence was the fact that Tippett was dead. And I've heard so many back and forth stories on Tippett about him being loved by the police officers or he was not really liked by the police officers. And it's just like, what the hell's true? I mean, I can understand corruption. Okay. And I look at it like this. If you just got the person who allegedly killed the president who's getting blamed for killing the president you have him in your custody you're about to get the fbi the cia the secret service the media all wanting interviews and all having eyes on you so what does that mean all your extracurricular activities are about to start getting looked into and something might be exposed where you're doing wrong so then they didn't really need to protect them as much as they probably should have and there you go you have jack ruby shooting them yeah you know, and you have Jack Ruby being, you know, tight with a lot of these cops and, and you know, giving them special treatment in the club. And, uh, you know, well, he was never they were never at the club, apparently. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. You believe that one? I'll tell you another one. Um, so, as, you know, as far as the politics go back then, I think Fritz was pretty notorious for being like, you know, uh, he had his homicide clearance rate was astronomical. And along with Henry Wade as a district attorney, you know, if something got pinned on you in Dallas back then, chances are you're going to take a ride. Uh, you know, you're not getting off. And damn the evidence, you know. Fritz's thing was trying to make people sign confessions so that it was just like, all right, once you go to court, well, here's you sign the confession, you're guilty, we're done, see you later. Uh, you know, and the tip, the whole Tippett thing went away relatively quickly when they figured out that, well, shit, we can pin, uh, yeah, we can get this guy for the, for the Tippett shooting, but, uh, more importantly, he's the guy that killed the president, you know, and the whole Tippett thing got kind of pushed to the background and not really investigated the way it should have been. Well, it's not, even, I think it was not even a day after Oswald was arrested. There were memos from Katzenbach and Hoover um, that were saying that we have the killer of the president. Like there was no investigation into it. It was Oswald did it. And that's final. And there were messages, I mean, from people that weren't even in Dallas at the time to be able to look into it or even do their own investigation. There was memos being sent from the White House to all these other sources to J. Edgar Hoover and saying, hey, you know, we got uh, Oswald in custody. He's the killer of the president. So everything's, you know, okay. And everything's, we're going to figure everything out. And it's just like, man, they didn't give him a fair trial. Obviously he didn't even get to live to see a trial, but it's just, I've never seen an investigation be done that way before, you know, where it's just pinning one person the whole time. Like usually you would think that the Warren commission would be something where you're investigating the president's death, but this one was Oswald did it. And we're going to show you how. Yeah. I think it was a definitely a, to quote the Mark Lane title, the rush to judgment, uh, for sure. Because I think, you know, you got to remember, this is the early sixties. The president has just been killed. It's the middle of the cold war. You know, everybody's scared to death of nuclear war back then, or the, or the thought of nuclear war, you know, 
you might possibly have nukes 60 miles off your shore. Um, I think the decision was made relatively quickly uh, to pin this on one man and one man alone with no ties to Russia or Cuba or, or any other of our enemies at the time, because, you know, it just would have gotten really ugly really quick and could, you know, potentially have gotten millions of people killed. Um, and that, I think that's what Johnson was worried about. And, you know, that's how he kind of cajoled, um, Earl Warren into, into heading this commission, you know, Hey, look, you know, we got it. We got to prove that Oswald was a lone assassin in, in, in the eyes of the public. And that's it. We need to move on. We can save millions of lives doing it. And uh, that's how we're going to do it. Do you think, basically. do you think Johnson was part of the plot to kill Kennedy or do you think he did his best to cover it up? No, I don't, I don't think uh, Johnson had any part in it at all. No, not at all. Um, if anything, you know, he might have not liked the Kennedys, but um, he and he he wasn't the best person, um, at, at, which is, you know, some of these Secret Service accounts of him pissing on the shoes and kicking dogs <laughs> Wait, and, what? and banging <laughs> secretaries. Oh, yeah. He, he, he would go out in the Rose Garden of the White House and take a piss and have all of this. Secret Service guys uh, form a circle around him so nobody could see, but he would piss on their shoes just to be a dick. That's I the kind of guy he was. I wish I would have learned this shit in school. It would have made, I probably would have got A's in all my classes. Oh, yeah. He, he would be taking a shit and make people come in and talk to him in the bathroom. That's like, so that's like when Bill Cosby, before he would go to bed, they would have a secret, one of the bodyguards tuck him in at night. Yeah. You know, it, the stories are insane when it comes to all these people, but um you know everybody uh, people that always say oh you know it was lyndon johnson was behind this this and that and the other but once he actually became president he realized okay this is not all it's cracked up to be i mean he didn't even run again he there's there's phone call transcripts of him talking to his aides um you know about you know pretty much saying i'm in way over my head you know i don't understand what the hell is going on uh, I don't want to do this anymore kind of thing. And that's why I didn't run again. So if that was his true ambition, oh, I want to be president. Well, then he would have ran again, you know? Well, the, the, I, I, I get what they say when they think a lot of people think Johnson did it, um, mostly because it just seems like he covered up a lot of stuff. I would agree more with the fact that he probably found out about what happened to Kennedy and he realized if he didn't play ball, he was probably going to be next. But I don't think he orchestrated the plot because you wouldn't sit a car behind Kennedy with your wife, whether you're in a bubble top or not. I mean, they knew it wasn't bulletproof. The general public didn't know it was bulletproof. So if a missing shot, we see the James Tag bullet. I mean, that could that could that could have happened to him if he was the one you wouldn't just you wouldn't make a plot like that and sit right behind the president. You would sit at least all the way at the end or not even be there on that ride when it happens. But there's just a lot of stuff where he's not out of the clear. I definitely think like I knew that they knew that they were taping conversations and stuff. But one of the most important things is when he says how many bullets were fired and Hoover's like uh, three were fired. He goes, was any of them fired at me? Right there is why I say he's a part of the cover-up because that's a guy who's trying to worry more about self-preservation rather than anything else. He doesn't care about Kennedy's death. He was more worried about himself. So, I mean, to me, that's evidence. Yeah, you know, and he was buddies with Hoover. I mean, I think they were neighbors. 
Um, so, you know, it's, it's, we don't have the entire picture. I mean, yeah, we have some tape conversations, but I'm sure the in-person conversations would have been really interesting to hear between Hoover and Johnson. I think we would get a much better picture. And then of course, you know, you have Johnson saying that crazy stuff, you know, towards the end of the sixties when he let his hair grow long and, 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 uh, he looked so, good. He looked good. Yeah. He looked pretty sweet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, uh, got into some of that, uh, peyote and weed down there in Texas, you know, towards the end of his life. I don't know what he was doing, but, um, you know, it's just, it's just hard to tell, you know, you have all these people, you know, that want to associate themselves with the case, you know, like Madeline Brown, of course, came out and said, you know, all this stuff about Lyndon Johnson and, and this Mac Wallace stuff. And it, it just gets crazy, man. It, there's so many spider webs in this case. It's just insane. That's the one thing I noticed where there are a lot of people are talking about, you can't trust their statements. You can't trust that. I think there's a lot of witnesses statements, but then what I started to notice was the same thing I noticed when it came to the Zodiac killer, how after a couple of years, there were people that were confessing that they were the Zodiac killer. And they would ask them a question, like, how would you kill your victims? And the person would be like, I used a hammer. They never Zodiac killer never used a hammer, but it was someone trying to take the credit for this. It's like why they stopped popularizing names of terrorists in um, news because they realized they were giving that terrorist like basically a platform of promotion. Um, even though they're no longer on to have it, but they were saying their name and they were so they just stopped saying that just said terrorism now. It's so you're not popularizing the act and making more people want to do that so they can get their name in a book or something like that. And that's what I started noticing with the Kennedy assassination. I mean, I think it's Helen Markham who said that allegedly the the lone nutters say that she saw Oswald get uh, shoot Tippett. Well, she never said who she saw. What she said was it was a short person and a little on the heavy side. But then in her, I pulled up her statement and I actually posted this on a comment someone left about um, show me the proof. Her statement was, I saw this man get, you know, get shot. I went over to him. He had a bullet in his forehead and he was saying something. And right there, I'm like, hang on a fucking second. Did he live after he was shot in the head? Like, <laughs> that's what happened with Kennedy. Everyone was speculating on the news of what rifle it was. But also they were saying the president's alive. And I'm like, I just watched a Zapruder film. Whether you agree it's altered or not, it's pretty damning. And it just they just said that the president's still alive. Where I go, was he? I mean, I don't, I don't know. Lincoln was shot in the head and he survived, but this looked like it took a giant chunk of his brain out. Well, you're alive until they pronounce you dead. That's how it works. That's how it works. Even though you might be missing half your head. I mean, you know, there's, but there's crazy stories, you know, like uh, Phineas Gage, you know, where you, you, he was working on the railroad and he went down on a, on a spike and it came up and went right into his cheek and went right out the top of his head an iron spike and this dude like walked three miles to the to the hospital with a hole in his head and he would start coughing and brain matter would come out and the and the whole thing is he miraculously survives you know and and it goes on to live many many years so you know i just i immediately in my head i went cha-ching he's getting paid by whatever business he's working for <laughs> well this is like back in you know, back in the day, back in the day. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's just, there's crazy. Nothing's nothing would surprise me, but I'm sure, like you said, watching the Zapruder film, it's pretty, it's pretty clear that as soon as that headshot hit, that was, he was done, you know, done. Did, 
was there ever any sections of, I guess, the case that you felt like you couldn't agree with? Like, I, I found it hard for me to agree that the Zapruder film was edited until I realized and started watching it and saw these what people would call these jumps. Like there's um, I think I had Michael Griffith on my show. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm saying his last name right. But he talked about how in the film you see a little boy that's right behind his dad. And then not even in the next frame, like a millisecond, the boys beside him clapping. There was no walking there. And it was just so it's so fast that it's impossible unless the kid can teleport and be in that situation where it looks like, OK, now there's more credit to the fact that the Zapruder film was altered. Yeah, you know, I, like I said, I think I've seen some things like I, I, I've seen a 4K scan uh, of the Zapruder film in a hotel room with Doug Horn and, and uh, you know, all these other respected researchers. And the details are so intense and in in what was then a 4K scan, you know, now we have what, 8K, 10K, it could be even crazier, you know, um, but it definitely looks like something was blacked out on the back of Kennedy's head for sure. And that there's something going on with the, the splatter, you know, the headshot, the, the orangeness of it, or, or, or it was just really weird looking in, in crisp detail. Um, but again, without a, without the original copy of the Pruger film, good luck proving it, you know? Do another thing of why it might be edited is when um, you saw Jackie Kennedy jump on the back of the car. If you look at the next film, she went farther back than I thought. And the Zapruder film never showed that. Like, it seemed like she went all the way almost like about to jump off the back of the car, like all the way stomach on the back. But this showed like her like looks like only her knee went that far. And then it, she ends up like getting pushed back or Clint Hill pushes her back in the car where I'm like, is that is that a good example to use? Because the next film was new to me. I didn't know there was another person that caught another angle of it that the government knew about that. They would like destroy the shit out of it. Yeah, well, good luck finding the original next film. What do you mean original next film? Yeah, it's 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 gone. It's it's lost. Like Harper fragment lost or like document lost? Well, like the government doesn't know where it is lost. There's copies of it out there, okay. but the original Nix film, um, Gail Nix Jackson, Gail Nix Jackson, she's the granddaughter of Orville Nix, and uh, she's a Facebook friend. You know, we've talked to her on the show before, um, and uh, she's been on this crusade for the past you know decade or so to try to find the original uh, Nix film, and you know that's basically all she wants to do, and. She hasn't yet, so uh, we'll see. There's just, like I said, there's a lot of aspects of this case, but what, what people would call, like, what Joe Green would call the strangeness, which is these weird aspects of the case that start popping up. And what I started to notice was I, my attraction would be Jack Ruby, just because to me, he seems like an interesting character. How come there's a Warren Commission statement about the man talking about his heart goes out for Jackie Kennedy? You know, like, does that mean that Kennedy frequented uh, Jack Ruby's club or was he doing the same thing General Walker did with his assassination attempt by naming Oswald as the person that tried to assassinate him just so he could hop on the same coattails of you know Kennedy's death basically yes Jack Ruby's a he's a he's a piece of work buddy um you know and he's a great guy only, yeah you know not only did he say that but he, you know he, he he was saying other things on, on on film saying you know hey basically get me out of Dallas and I'll tell you anything you want to know. Um, he didn't feel safe in Dallas jail for whatever reason. 
Um, but they, they wouldn't take him to Washington and um, let him tell them what he knew. You know, they would get, they gave him a polygraph, um, which he supposedly passed. Um, but again, it, you know, he said that the whole truth has not come above board, which means that, hey, I'm not telling you everything because I don't want to while I'm still in Dallas for a reason because he's scared of whatever is going on in Dallas. So it's hard to say. Did you ever believe any of his statements about them giving him cancer? Cause like, that's where I would say is like the really conspiratorial stuff. But what I found was Walker wrote a letter. So Walker, when he was arrested, he, I don't know how much you know about the Walker incident part, but he made a statement saying that, Oh, after Oswald's name was published for, being the assassin of kennedy he said that's the guy that tried to kill me well you know if you look at the statements of the witnesses during the walker incident that they saw two people not one and the fbi even has documents saying don't trust the thing he says he's just making stuff up he's basically hopping on the coattails of kennedy's death by saying if oswald tried to shoot or shot kennedy then tried to shoot me that means we must be in the same side so why don't you vote for me they realized he was using it for political gain but what was interesting was when he was arrested he had an envelope that was sent to him and allegedly he wrote this envelope but what it said was please do not give mr walker any psychiatric exams while he is under arrest no psychiatric evaluations and there's a thing about russian like these uh experiments with lobotomies that was the fear and i go if you look at that it was five years or four years before jack ruby allegedly starts going insane after being administered a flu shot where I start going, Jack Ruby's a good point to talk about MK Ultra, but did it go back even before that? How did Walker know about that? Like Walker was talking about it way before we even have the documents on Luis Joyon West meeting with Jack Ruby. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know about the, uh, the whole cancer thing. I mean, you got to remember the time period we're talking about here, the kind of guy Jack Ruby was. You know, this guy spent many, many years in smoky clubs sucking down you know secondhand smoke from you know for for years um the chances of him getting cancer and dying were pretty good um i'm sure his diet wasn't the best he was popping benzos you know he had lifestyle issues um what do you mean he was popping benzos he well he would pop the uh the uh, he ate the I think they were, I think they were called benzos. It was like uppers, you know, he put upper pills. He had a prescription for these. Oh, why, why, didn't, why didn't the Warren commission talk about this? There's none of that. They said he was a good puppy lover and everybody loved them. That's oh, a no, lie. No. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I don't think, I don't think Jack Ruby really drank a lot, but he, he used to pop pills, you know, and of course, if he was like, everybody says bisexual, um, very promiscuous with his dancers. Um, you know, there's, I think Mark Lane interviewed this guy who's, who said that uh, Jack Ruby would, would bring his dancers to private parties um, for get togethers, you know, for fees, and that he would sometimes join in and all this other crazy stuff. So, you know, you live a lifestyle like that. Chances of you, you know, living past 50. Uh, you know, especially if you had a hard life growing up and all that, everything combined into one, it's, it's not out of the realm of possibility that, you know, this guy 
given his mental state at the time, de- deteriorated quickly once he was in prison. It didn't help they gave him 126 x-rays in a matter of two weeks either. Right, right. That's fucking nuts, dude. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think anybody injected cancer into him, though. I mean, that's even like to, by today's standards. Is it even possible? I mean, who the hell knows? Allegedly, from what I heard from Greg Parker, he sent me an article. The CIA was at some type of hospital, and it was exposed in the media about injecting cancer cells into people. I don't know if that's a, just a crazy tabloid journalism type thing, but what that's what he used for an example of why Walker said that or why Jack Ruby said that was he believed that Jack Ruby was going insane and he saw that article and he thought of that. But then you can't explain his hallucinations of you know Jews burning in a street, his brother having no legs and just really insane stuff where I get if cancer affects your brain, he had it in his lung, he had it basically everywhere. But that was a specific, very, very specific thing that relates to a lot of the stories you hear with MK Ultra. Oh yeah. Yeah. I definitely wouldn't put them past them. Um, like I said, I just did, did that show not too long ago with, um, about Jolly West and Jack Ruby and all the other people that uh, Jolly West had treated, if you want to call it that. Um, and of course there's ties to the MK Ultra program and, and uh, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy to think about, but you know, what else? Cause by all appearances, you know, everything, everything that, that we see on Jack Ruby, he wasn't that crazy, you know, I mean, he might've been manic or OCD or ADHD or whatever you want to call him. But as far as openly hallucinating, you know, everything that we see from his trial and the interviews with him, uh, they never get to that point until then and you know was it a ploy just to look batshit crazy so he can get out of jail who knows well i think we kind of skipped over the question a little bit but when it comes to what you can't agree with like what's if you can give me like do you have a couple that you can think of that there's things you just won't even entertain like i have stopping points too like i get prayer man's controversial i i can see the evidence behind it but like there's just a lot of things where it's like the one incidents in the case i could never understand which is oswald in this book depository building afterwards allegedly riding a bus and a taxi it's information that's not soaking in my head and one thing that i've had my whole entire life was when it's a story or when it's something that's not necessarily true it's very hard for me to retain that information and that's one thing where it's just so sporadic and so all over the place whether it's a certain amount of events that happened in a short time period but it just didn't make sense to me i get he might have a boarding house i i see that there's a you know a person lee oswald or something like that or whoever that was or lee harvey or whatever that had a building or had a name there under for a, a boarding room or whatever and then someone saying that it looked like oswald but i just don't know because i don't know these people i've never seen them say anything but this specific information so how can i trust if it's true or not i mean what would be their incentive for lying and then you have like roger craig talking about he saw a person up there with glasses and a hat that was up on the building and then other witnesses saying that they saw a rambler as well too so now i have to validate his story yeah, a lot, a lot of, but like Roger Craig, for example, you know, it was relatively soon after the assassination where, you know, we have Roger Craig on record saying what he said then. Now, Roger Craig in the 70s uh, gets a little crazy, but 
when you when you strip away the influence that Mark Lean and a lot of these other uh, Penn Jones guys, you know, when they, when you have researchers getting onto a witness like that and trying to convince them, oh man, are you sure you didn't see this? You know, you look at this picture here. You remember seeing that and this guy and that guy and this? Um, they can kind of twist and contort a witness's memory to fit their theory of the case. You know, but you know, to get back to your original question about aspects that I just dismiss or, uh, you know, one thing I try not to look on because my brain just starts to melt when I think of it is a lot of the medical evidence, you know, and, and the assertions of fakery and, uh, you know, the double autopsies and a lot of this stuff you're never going to know the true answers to. Um, and that's what I try not to spend a lot of, yeah, you can prove this guy lied, you can prove this document's fake, or, or this picture's fake, or it's been faked, or you think it's fake. Um, you know, but the secrecy around everything, especially the medical evidence, um, I try, you know, my, my, I just can't wrap my head around it, you know, or there's a Pruder film for that matter, you know, it's, uh, you know, was it faked or was it not? You know, I don't know. You know, could it have been? Sure. Was it? I don't know. Um, you know, we only have so much to go on. You can only prove so much. Um, I like to spend my time uh, looking more through like the earliest witness testimony that we have, which I understand can't be 100% reliable. But um, when it comes to examining evidence of the case, you want to get the earliest stuff before it becomes contaminated by, you know, either re researcher investigations or official investigations. How much has the researcher investigations actually helped or hurt? I think it helps a lot, but I also see some people that necessarily are just writing something for a book or doing something for a movie or something like that. And it can mess up because I, especially with like a younger generation, like if you are giving them their first impression into this historical moment, basically. And I mean, if anybody really has seen the Zapruder film, that was my first introduction into Kennedy in junior year of high school. It was a 10 minute little segment on Kennedy. And that was, a, they showed the Zapruder film and that was it. And then I ended up looking more into the case and I've only been in it two and a half months now. And I've just start seeing that there's a lot of other deeper and the medical evidence was the first thing I latched onto. It's interesting, a fake brain. Oh, did they bash his head in? There's things that I just, it's so far into that dark side of the realm where that's not anybody's introduction. That should never be anybody's introduction. This should be something simple. The Zapruder film was fake. How can we prove it? Well, I was skeptical at first. I was kind of like, there's no way they could edit a film back then, really. But then I saw the equipment that they have, and it looks like a fucking meth lab in their basement where they do the photos and stick it up on like, you know, it's soaking wet. And, they, and I go, okay, so it is kind of possible that they could actually just maybe clip out or strip a certain part of the film. But even that's a little bit too over the edge. So let's start with something more simple. Oswald, who was he? And then you start trying to figure that out and you realize, you can't get a good grasp on who this guy is. Is he a, is he a nut? Is he a, a lone nutter? Apparently, people say that he was at a firing range shooting other people's targets saying, I'm going to this is what I'm going to do to President Kennedy. Either you're trying to fit in with Dallas because Dallas back then did not like Kennedy or it's a lie or someone's using your name. There's three different answers there. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, and most likely, you know, it's 
to make Oswald's name memorable. You know, like I, I just recently did an episode about Al Bogard and the, the downtown Lincoln Mercury dealership and all the crazy shit that was going on in there. I don't even know about that. Well, supposedly an Oswald uh, came into the dealership two weeks before the assassination and said he was going to come into a bunch of money in a couple of weeks. And he wanted to test drive this Mercury Comet, you know. So they went on a test drive and he basically took the car on the motorcade route through the city at high rates of speed. Now, supposedly Oswald didn't have a driver's license, couldn't drive. Um, and when they got back, you know, this guy wrote his name down on a piece of paper, Lee Oswald. And, you know, he told a guy at there, he said, look, if this guy comes back in to buy this car and I'm not here, take care of him and I'll split the uh, commission with you. And of course, Oswald never came back to buy the car, but somebody dropped a dime on him that was working in a dealership, basically called the FBI and said, hey, you know, these guys, um, you know, alleged that Lee Oswald came in here. They wrote their name down, he, his name down. And, you know, even one of the guy's wife said, yeah, he had a piece of paper in his pocket that said Lee Oswald because it was a potential customer. So again, obviously, well, not obviously. I mean, it could have been Lee Oswald. He could have known how to drive. I mean, really, how complicated is driving? You know, you're a 24-year-old dude. You might not have a driver's license, but driving a car is not rocket science. Shit, you know I'm what sorry. I mean? The way you said that, you said you're a 24-year-old dude and you don't have a driver's license. I'm like, I don't know. I have a driver's license. I thought you're talking. To, I thought you're talking to me. I didn't realize you're talking about Oswald. No, no. But like you know, somebody as old as you, even if you didn't have a driver's license, you know, growing up, you could figure it out. You probably would have been able to drive somebody's car along the way and figure it out. You know, it's not rocket science to drive a car, uh, especially if you've been in the military for for two or three years. You know, uh, it's just it could have been Oswald being braggadocious or it could have been somebody making the name Lee Oswald memorable before the assassination saying that he was going to come into a bunch of money. And I look, I'll be back and I'm going to buy that car in a couple of weeks. Cause I'm going to, you know, I'm coming into a bunch of money. So. I stick with like you, for instance, I'm very open to obviously both sides of the art. I've had Dale Myers on here. I enjoyed my conversation with him. You know, I like talking to both sides. People are just people, you know, you might have differences on some things, but everybody can talk. I've spoken with a thousand something academics before I even got interested into the Kennedy assassination. That's like iron metabolism and all this other crap that's out there scientific wise. This is just a little bit more fun because I get to kind of, you know, talk about the weirdness that's all in all this. But when I talk about the issue of case closed, or it's just one simple thing, it's not because then you look at examples like there was a uh, Gary Hill mentioned to me about this might be controversial, but Oswald going to a car repair place where Ruth Payne had her vehicle there and he offered to pay the price for her car being repaired by selling his rifle. Like he was going to trade his rifle 
for that. Is that true? I don't know. But what I started to notice was Ruth Payne has made public statements that she did not want Oswald staying at her house. She did not like Oswald that much and all this. But then she's so back and forth because then there's letters and there's messages and there's phone calls where Oswald called the house twice and she picked it up both times, even after the assassination. So she's not being truthful. And what I found in my own research was that after Ruth Payne made a statement saying she never spoke with Marina after that assassination. They went their separate ways and that was it. But there's a, there's a, when the secret service was watching Marina, someone made a document saying that they saw Ruth Payne show up to the house with Oswald's mail and asked to speak with Marina and Marina denied it. So now Ruth Payne is lying. She's not, whether she remembers it or not, she seems like she's on her shit when she starts talking about stuff. But there's just there's things that aren't making sense to her story. And then when I had Tom Graham on here, he mentioned when Ruth Payne drove Marina up to New Orleans and on the way back, Marina decides to make a mail transfer to not from the new or not to the New Orleans house, but to Ruth Payne's house to have all her mail directed to Ruth Payne's house. And what I thought is, I don't know if you've heard the conspiracies that Ruth Payne was like a lesbian or something like that. The, the, the way that I handle that is imagine you just separated with your husband of 17 years or however long. And then what you do is you just got a, a lady that's not living with you. You develop a close relationship with her, her kids and all this. Now you're having fun. You don't want it to end. So I bet you when they went up to New Orleans, Marina was having hesitations about moving up to New Orleans, probably because she saw Oswald's home and just didn't feel comfortable. And she was probably convinced by Ruth to stay a little bit longer at her house. I don't think that's a CIA tactic. I don't think that's a love tactic. I think that's just like you're having fun. You know, you're having a friend at your house, basically, that's staying with you and you kind of don't want it to end because then you'll be alone in your house. To me, those are all logical things. So when they say case closed, I go, this isn't like conspiracy talk. This is just things you can question, things that are like two plus two is four. Like it would make sense. You wouldn't order a rifle under a fake name to a P.O. box under your real name. That doesn't make sense. You wouldn't go around town bragging about killing the president if you were going to kill the president. That's just going to get people to throw you in fucking jail. Yeah. You know, like going back to the rifle, you know, it was ordered in the name of Alec Heidel, AJ Heidel, whatever. You know, and if this rifle tied back to this supposed Castro supporter that's in the Fair Play for Cuba committee, was found at the scene of the crime, what does that implicate? It implicates a pro-Castro sympathizer taking shots at the president. It doesn't necessarily mean that Lee Oswald was up there shooting that rifle. Maybe Oswald thought that, you know, his they would never figure out who really ordered the rifle, um, despite the fact that the P.O. box was used that could be tied back to him or his mother. Um, you know, and he could have been convinced somebody or somebody could have convinced him, say, look, you know, we're, we're going to have somebody out here. We're going to scare President Kennedy into doing something about Cuba. Um, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to have somebody taking shots at, it, at the dude while he drives through Dealey Plaza. They're going to do a search of the premises. They're going to find this rifle. They're going to tie it back to this fictional A.J. Haddale guy, a pro Castro supporter. And then maybe Kennedy will do something about Cuba. You know, um, who knows what the real truth is, but you know, it, it's, 
that I mean, that's just one aspect of how you could say or how you could come to the fact that maybe Oswald did take this rifle into the depository and planted it, you know, in between all these books. You know, I, I can see that. Um, I just I, I when I look at the statements of someone saying if I was going to be put in a lineup to be shot at, I would rather have Oswald be the shooter because he was such a bad shot. And then you look at this shot where they recreated it on, I think it's NBC or something like that, where they had the target that was moving 75 yards away and kept on moving away and tried to recreate it. And even some of the best shots said they, they could make maybe one. I think it was one guy that had the best shot. He was an engineer. He made two of the shots and then one that was a little bit off. And it's just like, it is kind of a difficult shot and the rifle condition of what they found it. And they talked about that, that pin, it was very rusty. Like if they were afraid to, you know, mess with it or try and do anything with it because it might break it, then that's tampering evidence. And you just get into this aspect. Okay. How easy was it to, for someone to make that shot? I had a guy who I work, well, I wouldn't say work with, but he comes to my work. I work at a gym and he comes in and he saw I was interested in the case. And this is when I noticed it was a controversial thing. Cause you, you get into it, you're, you start talking about it all the fucking time. So like you can't shut up about it. So I'm like going around work, like, dude, did you know that the you know, everyone would just roll their eyes and walk away? And I was like, why is this so like not being talked about? And this guy said back in 1962, 63, he used to stock Pepsi's. At, he worked for a Pepsi company, he used to stock Pepsis and sodas and everything at that place and at other places. He goes, if you just go there and go up to the top, you'll know one man could easily shoot the president. I'm like, but what fucking evidence is that? Like, I don't I don't understand what that is. And then he says Pepsis. I go, I thought it was Cokes that were being stocked at that thing. And he goes, no, I stock Pepsis there. And I'm like, so do they have a conglomeration or a collaboration of both? And you start realizing that now you're starting to find different holes or small little things. Like I even had a guest that was not on to talk about JFK, but he gave me the weirdest thing that I told Joe Green about Arlen Specter. He was a bus boy where Arlen Specter would frequent. And he said when Arlen Specter would come in, what he would want is his usual, which is a martini glass on one tray, walked over to him, placed directly in front of him, not off to the side, directly in front of him with three olives on a toothpick placed exactly on top. That's fucking weird. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, this whole case is weird. You know, like, like I said, at the top of the show, I was going to tell you about Thomas Beckham, right? He's, he's one of, I think, the most fast, fascinating characters in the case. And to my knowledge, still alive today, dude. So he first came to light in the uh, Garrison investigation. You know, the, when he was trying to build a case against Clay Shaw, somehow this kid at the time, well, not kid, but, you know, early 20s, um, basically this guy Thomas Beckham was a con artist, a country singer, uh, a man of the cloth. Uh, he had a bunch of fake degrees and uh, mail order, you know, doctor certificates, things like this. Um but he, he was running around New Orleans with Jack Martin, who uh, was famous, was famously pistol whipped by Guy Bannister at the beginning of the Oliver Stone movie, because he thought that he was digging around in his files. Um, but anyway, this, this kid, Thomas Beckham, was hanging around uh, Jack Martin. He, he, he knew Guy Bannister. He knew David Ferry. Um, so if you go back and you look at the grand jury transcripts, for the for the garrison investigation they talked to beckham 
I think it's almost 200 pages long. And Beckham doesn't tell him anything. I mean, he just goes off on one tangents. He even he's even he even tells him, "Well, look, I got a document that once everybody sees it, uh, Jim Garrison's done, right?" And so they're like freaking out. They're like, "Well, what is this document you have? Uh, where is it? Um, what's it say?" And uh, so he finally says that it's a, he got it notarized. Somebody tracked him down in the store and basically told him that that they that they knew for a fact that Jim Garrison was meeting uh, with, with these uh, CD homosexuals and having sex with them. And then he even had sex with Clay Shaw and all this stuff. And uh, so they eventually, they called Thomas Beckham's dad to bring this document down um, to look at it. And they kind of blow it out of the water and uh, everything's kind of forgotten, right? Until the HSCA investigation because um, they didn't use Thomas Beckham at all. Garrison didn't use him in, in, the, in the trial, probably for good reason. Um, but during the HSCA investigation, um, LJ Delsa and uh, his partner interviewed Thomas Beckham again in, in, the, in the late 70s. And by then, okay, David Ferry's dead. Uh, Fred Chrisman is dead. Clay Shaw is dead. You know, a lot of these characters are dead and gone so they offer him immunity for his testimony and he goes on to tell what he says really happened and what he says is his truth um which entails a fantastic story basically of him tied up with all these guys banister ferry uh g ray gill um one of Marcelo's sons and they're in G Ray Gill's office and he's given an envelope and they, they tell him he's got to take it to Dallas. So he flies to Dallas. He meets Lawrence Howard in Dallas a couple weeks before the assassination, hands him this envelope. Howard looks in it, pulls stuff out. He said it was like pictures and diagrams and stuff. And, and he said that, Lawrence Howard looked at him and said, is this it? And uh, Beckham's like, yeah, man, this is it. That's what they gave me. He's like, are you sure? And he acted very pissed off and basically told him, you know, tell him, you know, I'm expecting, I'm expecting more. So they sent, they sent him back. And he, of course he went back and uh, reported back to him what, what Lawrence Howard told him. And he was like, you know, what, what was he missing? And they wouldn't tell him anything. Um, he also stated that he was out front of the trademark in New Orleans when Oswald was handing out leaflets. And that after Oswald was done handing out leaflets, they went down the street and got a Coke and they were talking. And Oswald basically told him, hey, I don't worry about it. You know, I'm not worried about it. The chief, the chief, the chief will protect me, you know. So basically, this guy admits knowing Oswald, talking to Oswald, um, being around Oswald in New Orleans and even transporting some stuff and implicating other people in the assassination plot. So at the time, they didn't really know what to make of the story. And it was not soon after they interviewed Beckham that they kind of cut off any further investigation. 
you know, there was at some point of the HSCA where they basically ran out of funding at some point and they pulled the plug on these field interviews. And so they never followed up with, with, with Beckham or his allegations. And then this guy Beckham writes a book in 2008 called Remnants of Truth. And it's very hard to find. Um, and he basically says the same thing, you know, among other things. Um, but that he was kind of working for the CIA. He was working with Fred Chrisman, who was a, a CIA agent who was uh, working on Project Looking Glass and all this other crazy stuff. And that they would, uh, you know, they were running uh, money to these Cuban uh, exiles and, you know, doing all this stuff. And basically, you know, people have been following him. Uh, you know, he's scared for his life. This is going to be the last thing he says on the, on the, on the, uh, on the entire thing was back in 2008. And I've tried to get a hold of him. I've tried to email him. I've tried to call him. I get nowhere. Um, basically, his son basically said that he's not talking anymore. Um, so it's just one of those, another one of those crazy stories, man, that you'd love to find the real answers on. And then, you know, they won't talk anymore. The amount of times I've heard someone say Oswald was getting a Coke somewhere, I go, this would all be so much easier if we knew if Oswald was diabetic or not. Like, he's not drinking that many Cokes if he's a diabetic. Like, this would all be exposed and wrapped up pretty simple to be like, oh, well, that's obviously fake because he doesn't drink Coke. He's a he's a sugar-free man. Um, <laughs> well, it's a big thing to do, you know, back in, I guess, back in New Orleans, you know, they had the, all these little, you know, uh, like pharmacies, you know, where they would have like the, the, the soda lines um, and people would actually go have a soda. It was like a big deal. You know what I mean? To uh, go into the, like the corners of Walgreens or whatever and, and sit at the bar and have the girl, you know, pour you a Coke. And Well, look at Vietnam. I don't like, I always wondered why my grandfather always drank a Coke and he swore religiously by Coke and he fought in the Vietnam war. And he talked about because the Coca-Cola sponsored the military, basically, you know, we, that was a Coke drink. It was there was no Pepsi involved. It was a Coke family. We're a Coke family. And that was because of what they did for the military during the Vietnam War. And you find out a little bit darker stuff where like, you know, Coke might actually help create Agent Orange. I had a guest on a long time ago that studied Agent Orange and talked about all these derivative chemicals that they had. There was Agent Orange, Agent Blue, Agent, all these different things. And the reason why they called them this was in the files agent orange's actual real name is like some type of numbered code and the number code is just one off from the other chemical and the other chemical and the other chemical so when you're writing something down to try and find these documents most people think it's going to be under a different categorization but it's so you get them mixed up so if you request the freedom of information act and it takes eight months to go through you could have requested the wrong number because you were off by one and it was like there's really weird tactics in like legal speak you know that from looking through documents but like me saying 1035 960. We know that's the Warren Commission document to the media outlets. We'll look up what I've been saying for the longest time, and I've been mistaken. 1095 360. I've been saying it wrong. I went to go look up what that was, 1095 360, and I'll send it to you. It is a six-page paper on the human brain. And it's by the CIA. They have a document on this. But what they talk about is ways to manipulate the consciousness. They go into uh, what is it? Um, astral projection they go into remote viewing they go into all these are all scientifically laid out in descriptions where i don't know if that's interesting to anybody else out there but that's interesting to me because it's just two numbers that are switched around and you get a completely different side where the government is and like 
I think you have to like warm people up to the MK Ultra stuff because that was labeled a conspiracy for the longest time. And that's the hardest part about history right now is like if they destroy a document or what they like, I didn't realize how easy it was until I'm like looking for a file on my computer. I'm like, where did I must have trashed it? I'm like, it wasn't that simple to trash it, but it's not like impossible to be like, okay, this document either was destroyed because you no longer needed it, or you were told to destroy it, or it just got filed somewhere and nobody knows where that is. Yeah, I'm sure there's a ton of stuff out there filed in the wrong spots. And, you know, I think, you know, from talking to Bart and, and you know, Malcolm Blunt, you know, a lot of the stuff that he's, he, he's found at the archives has just been misfiled. I mean, there's a ton of stuff. And, you know, when you have the human element involved, it's going to happen, whether it was originally done like that, or you have, you know, other workers, you know, at the archives, putting something back in the wrong place or, you know, when they, when they file it, putting the wrong number attached to it. So it, anything's possible, you know, I mean, the document, the smoking gun document could be sitting in the uh, archives right now <laughs> in a file labeled, uh, you know, Lord, who knows what, um, but until we find it, we don't have it. When it comes to, I guess, who do you think? I, and it's a dumb question. I, I hate it. And we, people even ask me about it. like, who do you think killed Kennedy? Who do you think would probably be the main person you'd look at? Because I would probably lean more towards Dulles and the CIA, the military industrial complex. But I know people would say Johnson and some people would say the mafia. And I just think I looked at the relationship between the mafia and the military, and it's been going on for a long time. Um, I think maybe that's a possibility, but I think if you look at who overall is pulling the trigger on something like that, the military industrial complex is not going to let the mafia kill Kennedy unless they wanted Kennedy dead. Yeah, I always thought, you know, throughout the years, my, my idea of who was behind this has evolved and, and changed multiple times. Um, and it, and, as you go along your journey, you, yours will too. You know, once once you find new information out, you know, as long as you're open-minded, you'll be like, okay, all right, now we have to account for this. Now we have to account for that. So this, what I thought before, doesn't make sense anymore. Um, my answer to that question, and I always thought, okay, if I'm in Dealey Plaza, I got the rifle, I'm behind the grassy knoll and I'm pulling this trigger and I'm taking this guy out. It's either has to be because I'm getting paid an exorbitant amount of money to do this or ideologically I'm so opposed to this guy that I don't care if I'm getting paid or not. I'm taking this motherfucker out. You know what I mean? So for me, it's one of two possibilities. Either it's a paid assassin or it's an ideological assassin. And if we're in the realm of ideological assassins, then we're into they're against Kennedy's personally for his policies or what he's done. And the only thing that he really did that would have pissed a lot of people off is the Bay of Pigs. Um, he was viewed as being soft on communism and a lot of people uh, who were anti-Castro um, fighters and Castro and Cubans 
um, you know, lost their lives. A lot of people lost their buddies, their friends. And a lot of these guys just happened to be mercenaries, CIA guys. Um, so in the mindset of a lot of these people, you know, like including like General Walker and a lot of these far extreme right wingers back in the day who were going around giving these speeches about Castro and Cuba, um, you know, Reverend Billy Hargis, General Walker, Lauren Hall, um, you know, the John Birch Society. You, you go back and you look at these people who was blatantly speaking out against Kennedy and his policies and Cuba, who were ideologically screwed up enough to get behind a plot to take Kennedy out or, you know, even still be the be that guy who would pull that trigger regardless of the consequences. And to me, you know, I can see it more as that kind of a plot rather than, okay, you know, it's a you know, CIA plot with E. Howard Hunt and Frank Sturgis on the grassy knoll and all this kind of stuff. Um, it's, it's, I, I'm leaning more toward rogue elements of the CIA um, and also anti-Castro mercenaries or Cubans. You know, because if you go back and you look and you see, and like you talked to Larry Hancock a couple of times, he had a great book, someone would have talked, um, you know, where, where you get into the stories of, of, of these guys, um, Roy Hargraves in particular, he was running with Interpen, guys like Jerry Patrick Hemming, Lauren Hall, Lawrence Howard. And then you hear, okay, Thomas Beckham says he took something to Lawrence Howard in Dallas two weeks before the assassination, where Howard was running around with Hall, who was arrested with Howard in Dallas a month before the assassination. And then you start putting all this stuff together where Hemming is saying, okay, well, my, my buddy, uh, Philippe Vidal Santiago was in Dallas the week of the assassination. I couldn't get a hold of him. He was supposed to go there and be meeting with General Walker. Um, and I was trying to warn him not to go to Dallas. And then you have an interview for, with Noel Twyman uh, that did, he did with Roy Hargraves that Larry Hancock published, where he basically admitted that him and Vidal Santiago were in Dallas. And um, he, he didn't come out and say it but he pretty much insinuated that they were involved in the assassination in some, in some form or fashion. Um, so it's these very seedy, unknown elements that you have to be able to put all these pieces of the puzzle together to kind of put a, a mental picture together and grasp the concept of how this actually came together and was executed. And it's so far under the radar um, you know, it's easy to say, oh, oh, CIA was behind it. Alan Dulles ordered it. Um, you know, uh, it's easy to do. It's easy to say that, but it's not so easy to prove. You know, I want to toss a couple fringe things at you, um, just from my own perspective and my own understanding. And I didn't necessarily believe it at first either. And you could tell me if this kind of might resonate or might not. My show is conversation. It's not interviews. I just talk to people, and necessarily, you end up revealing something you necessarily probably weren't even going to end up talking about but i had peter kuznick on my show who wrote untold history of the united states with um oliver stone 
he had a different take about Kennedy than probably what most of the Kennedy, because the issue when you start going into the Kennedy assassination, where I started noticing all these experts that study it, they're fanboys of Kennedy. I don't mind Kennedy at all. I just don't have a relationship with who he was as a president. I don't know anything about him because I'm from a younger generation. So I'm coming in with a perspective that has no biases in any direction. If it's not a conspiracy and it's all this, then I'm, I'm not losing any sleep over it. But I just started noticing things that are things you can question. So I tried to think, how big of an issue was communism? How big of an issue was it at this time? So I talked to a buddy of mine who worked at, works at the United Nations, Miles Pomper, who works as um, it's nuclear threat disarmament. And he was talking about, well, communism was this thing like where they had jets that would fly basically at the borderline between America and Russia or not America and Russia between these points where American Americans were stationed and then where Russia was and they would just fly and basically just and in a line, like kind of following each other, one on one side, one on the other side, just get, waiting for an excuse to attack the other one if they stepped over the boundary. That's how tensions were so high up back then. So now I'm starting to understand communism more, but let's take it from a more common example that everyone can remember because it just happened recently, COVID. At the beginning of COVID, everyone thought that your loved one was going to die. Like everyone thought we were going to lose half the population of Earth, like it was going to be a Thanos snap. So that's probably what communi communism was a fear back then. You thought that any moment you could go to a nuclear war and the world was about to change. So now I can understand it a little bit more, but what Peter Kuznick said was that Kennedy started off on a platform and this is where Oliver Stone kind of takes it like he saw the horrors that happened and he switched his thing for an idea of peace that is true but also he switched when he was like he thought he ran on a platform because he knew that that was a way to get elected Kennedy changed somewhere in his, you know, in his office, he changed in that time period and completely went the opposite of what he was initially elected for. And Peter Kuznick said that his whole family had these conservative roots and backgrounds. This Kennedy was just ended up changing into something that he initially never even started. And it wasn't an idea of just to get elected. It was he experienced real change. He experienced something completely different by going over to these countries and talking to them and getting to know these people, creating backdoors between cats creating back doors between Khrushchev. And if you look at Eisenhower, who was just this person that, I mean, Bay of Pigs was an inherited problem of Kennedy. What makes me like Kennedy is the fact that he goes, I am the leader. I am the person who will take the blame. Even though it wasn't his problem, it wasn't his fault. To me, that's a sign of someone with integrity. So you get to this point where you have all these inherited problems that Kennedy ends up taking the blame for. But notice how the CIA was so involved in Cuba long before Kennedy even came around. Now you start realizing that the CIA had this idea of plausible deniability. Don't let the president needs, doesn't need to know about that. Only if it's an emergency. You don't need to even ask them because they're so used to getting the word yes all the time. Now you look at, let's take it from a business aspect. All the profits they were getting out of Cuba all the profits they were getting out of, you know, just the connections that they were making from casinos, mafia, whatever you want to say. The mafia had connections. They wanted, they didn't want to lose Cuba either. They had ties over there as well, too. Then here's the fringe part. The reason why we were in Vietnam. Now, there's many speculations on reasons why you went to war. But John Potash, um, when I had him on my show, I asked him, why do you think we're in Vietnam? He goes, it's not a coincidence that the two longest wars America has ever been in have been Vietnam and Afghanistan. And what's one common similarity with Vietnam and Afghanistan? It's one of the giant trades of heroin. And that's where I say it's fringe because people will roll their eyes on there. So I go, I mean, that's, that's, I get it. It's drugs, it's profit maybe, but he explained it in a way where if you look at the poison or the killing attempts on Castro, 
one of the things was poison cigars. The chemical that's in poison cigars and that is a thing called botulium or it's botulum or something like that. B-O-T-U-L-I-U-M um, is the, and it's something else after it, but it's like black tar. And what that's commonly found in is heroin. So, I mean, if you find a chemical, whether you want to use it as a drug as heroin or not, and I've heard stories of soldiers on my show that have explained guarding poppy fields with no explanation of why they were guarding poppy fields over there. So you get into like to this controversial area, but you start looking at it with even if that's fringe and even if all the other stuff's fringe, but the connections in mafia, the connections with gun running in Cuba, all these types of things, you start realizing this isn't just a person that they hated. You got to look at this as an aspect of this is a person that's going to fuck with their money. And that's how you look at it. And that's how you can understand why all this stuff sounds insane. It sounds crazy because you examine it from a perspective of why would they just kill a person they disagree with? It wasn't just that. Imagine you find a way to make Google lose a billion dollars. You're telling me a black van's not going to pull up to your house and throw you in it? Like, that's the thing. It's, it's a profit incentive. At this point, they've been in so far in the game that they're trying to keep their money, their lifestyles have probably adjusted. I was used to spending $5 a day. And then I started working two jobs. And now my increase of how much I spend a day is way more than $5. So you start realizing you adjust your income. Bill Gates didn't start spending a million dollars on a yacht or anything like that. No, actually, he rents out his yacht for $600 million a week. That's fucking nuts. Um, that's just bad money spending. But if you got money, you can do that. And you make unfine or unreasonable choices with that money so now you look at it from that the business aspect when it comes to heroin when it comes to all these things and why kennedy pissed people off it was because you're not just messing with it's not that we don't like you because you're a liberal it's because we don't like you because now you're messing with my money yeah well you know back back then in the, in the 50s 60s 70s you know the cia and, well, and the military um were both held under strict budgets and they were washed over. So to do anything extraneous, you need a black budget. Where does that money come from? It comes from drugs. Um, at least that's what I think. You know, you read these, you hear these stories about, you know, drugs coming back stuffed in the bodies of dead soldiers from Vietnam, um, things like that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's totally believable, you know, but or just throwing it all on a big C-130 and, and bringing it back. And, and there's allegations as the CIA, like with Gary Webb, you know, they started the whole crack, the whole crack thing. Um, and, you know, stuff with like Mina, Arkansas and Bill Clinton and all this stuff ties back to the CIA, Barry Seal. It's not a big secret that these if, you, if they want to maintain autonomy and do what they want to do that they're going to need a black budget to do it. And that funding, that money has to come from somewhere. Um, and if it, if it's not allocated by our government and, you know, of course, when you're giving money to an organization, you have to basically account for where your money is spent. Um, you can be audited and to do things that are, you know, a little, not above board per se, um, you need the funding to do that. And I think all of that stems from money brought in from the drug trade, arms, illegal arms trade, drug trades, uh, things like that. So yeah, it's not surprising.
I, I know saying that's probably going to get some people like, oh, and they're going to roll their eyes at it. But I just look at it from this aspect of if you can understand how many people wanted Castro dead and we're OK with ex We accept the fact that, like, if you find out they had assassination attempts on Castro, you go, yeah, I heard that guy was a horrible dude because that's what you were told. And it's OK because it's not in your country. The example I would always use would be when I talk to someone about renewable energies. And we mentioned, um, I mentioned an example in my town, which is about building solar or not solar panels, uh, wind turbines. Our town wanted wind energy, but what happened was to go, okay, we're going to build it three miles off our coast. And I live in ocean city. So that would obstruct people's view and they go, oh, I don't want it anymore. So you don't want the clean energy, but you all, because it's going to obstruct your view. And you start realizing the reason why we mine resources out of another country is so we don't have to see it. And now you get into this aspect. Does that make it okay? No, but people who are hypocrites will say it's okay because I, I don't, it's not happening here. But does that mean the only problem you care about are things that you can see? What about the things that you can't see? And now you've opened up the door to the conspiracy side of things where the things you can't see are scary and dark. The way that I stand with everything that I talk about, I love the government messing around. I love that type of shit. I'm not an anarchist. I don't want to burn it down. I think you have to notice evil and correct it, but I don't like being told a fairy tale. We've spent way too long in this country understanding that we're it's all Superman and all all this. Well, Superman smokes cigarettes, and you got to accept that. And you can't be mad when you find out the truth. There are hard things I believe the government has to do for protection. But I also look at it's not just our government. It's every government. There's dark history about it. And I think as a human person, you should understand it. And I get it if people don't want to live in that reality. But to me, it's just like, I like knowing about it. There's nothing I can do about it. I mean, shit, I, I sm I'll sm I'll smoke a cigarette. It's just like after sex, you smoke a cigarette. I'm outside freaking stroking my hair like Kramer because I'm losing my mind that, you know, Kennedy was killed in some aspect. But I just go, you can let it freak you out. You can let it ruin your life. Or you could just look at it like now you're more knowledgeable about how the world works and you start realizing the evils of things and you start noticing of things you can start to question more. Yeah, I think that's a perfect analogy. And, you know, you first want to get in this case and you think you want to learn all you can learn about the assassination. You want to try to be the guy who figures it out, who comes up with the answer, who solves the case, this, that, and the other. But the more important aspect, at least to me, is the investigation. You know, I love trying to figure, I love a good mystery. and you know, I was raised on Hardy Boys books and, and Scooby-Doo and shit like that, you know, back in the day. That's just how I grew up. I grew up reading a lot. And, you know, once you dive into this subject, it, it's like a gateway drug to other things because you see it's a window into the world of how things work, you know, and not just one thing, but you see how the FBI works. You see how the CIA works. You see how cover-ups work. You know, you see how um, setups or patsies are involved in things. You see how assassinations are pulled off in other countries and these uh, coups and overthrows and um, why it's done. And, and is it other, out of the realm of possibility that it was done here? No, it's not out of the realm of possibility. It could very well um, have turned around. You know, and then you look around and you think to yourself, okay, well, they tried to kill this Castro guy who's literally 60 miles off our shore for, what, 60 years and they couldn't do it? So how good is the CIA at assassinations? You know what I mean? Like, 
you, you couldn't kill this guy. He's basically 90 or 60 miles away, 90 miles away saying, you know, fuck you. I'm still here. I'm 95 years old. I lived through it all. You tried to kill me a hundred times and I, I'm, I'm still here, you know? And that always, you know, makes you think like, okay, well, how good is this, you know, assassination squad of the CIA? Where, where was QJ Wynn, uh, you know, with his rifle? I mean, couldn't they get this guy? Couldn't they get him? You know, you have all these uh, anti-Castro Cubans and, and uh, anti-Castro Americans, you know, running independent raids into Cuba to try to get this guy. They couldn't sneak one guy through there one Rambo type dude to take this guy out or they tried to poison him with chicks and, and, and pills and you couldn't get the job done. So how good is this CIA assassination squad? You know, they try, they try to get them through all the major gateways. They try to get them through women. They try to get them through drugs. They try to get them through like cigars. They try to get them through whiskey. They try to get them through a bunch of stuff. And I'm like, yeah, through food. Like I, you know, I wouldn't have made it. his food. And he'd be like, yeah, I'm not eating it. Or you'd have a guy, all right, dude, you know, you take a bite, and if you're okay, then we're good. You know, he's like almost like Dr. Evil of Mike Myers, you know, of, of, of Cuba back then. But, you know, how good was the CIA assassination squad? I think it's a strategy. I think it was much more probably better for them to think that Castro would be living in fear, be paranoid as hell, and start questioning more about his own army, causing a stir up between. And that's what I started noticing about the Bay of Pigs was a lot of the individual actors that were over there. Um, it was about divisivizing the population and causing them to stir up against Castro to hopefully spark up an army against his own people, basically. And I think that's a smart strategy. But did you, well, I talked to someone about um, the media influence, the military influence in media, and it's really, really dark. Like J. Edgar Hoover had a whole policy about invading Hollywood looking for informants and actually was on the FBI website, saw a Disney file. Dude, this is how crazy it is. The first page on Walt is 700 pages. I read all 700 because it was so damn fascinating to me. The first page was we're going to incorporate FBI agents into cartoons with Mickey Mouse so the kids can look at the FBI and hopefully want to be one when they get older. That's fine to me. I'm okay with that. But then 600 pages in, you find out that he's ratting out his employees, calling them communists, having them deported and interrogated by the FBI all because they wanted to strike up labor unions. Or I'm like, you fucking asshole. And then like there's, you know, him pointing, they photoshopped a cigarette out of his freaking fingers. So there's a lie again. But the so the whole point of that is when I mentioned the, the Hollywood influence or military influence on Hollywood, I had um, Matthew Alford on here who wrote a book or not wrote a book, made a documentary called Theaters of War. And he mentioned about the interview because I mentioned to that, that must have been a problem for the military. I would assume you're making a movie about assassinating Kim Jong-un. Like, are you kidding me? Like even James Franco and all that hate us because they ain't us. <laughs> and he goes, did you know the CIA funded that movie? And I go, what? And he goes, if you look afterwards, after that movie came out, what they did was they took it, put it on a thumb drive, put it to helium balloons, and they tried to launch it over the border. For, so the people of the population over there would take it, stick it into their computer, and then you know they would see the real exposing of how bad their dictator is. There's an article about people that were being killed because they were sticking this hard drive into their computer, and it had that movie on it. So that's an unintended consequence that the CIA didn't think through of them, them being killed. But you just realize, like, holy shit, there's like strategies all over the board that have either really bad consequences or, I mean, they're good, weird ass moves that they do. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one thing the CIA does well is propaganda um, and not really as <clears throat> assassinations. Because um, if you go back and you look, you know, you think 
<clears throat> the Hollywood aspect of it, you know, glorifies the CIA. You know, when you watch something like Mission Impossible or you see these spy movies um, that make it look really cool to be a spy, like there's, you know, Jason Statham is, you know, diving off the building. And, you know, I just watched The Gray Man the, uh, the other day. You know, you see these badass assassins of the CIA. Um, and that's what you want to, that's the romantic version that, that Hollywood wants you to think about. This is a CIA agent. When in reality, you have somebody at the CIA making a decision, okay, we're going to call up this, uh, this guy, Robert Mayhew, who was a former FBI agent, detective, now he has his own detective agency, uh, but he's tight with, with, the, uh, with the Italians, he's tight with the mafia. We're going to get him to be our intermediary guy, and we're going to offer, you know, we want, we want the mafia to take care of Castro, you know. We don't want to be associated with it. It's our idea, but we're going to use them. We're going to pay them to do our dirty work for us. And I think that's that's the reality of the situation when you look at CIA plots. Um, you know, you don't have these super awesome, C, you know, CIA agents running around the world doing all these clandestine, uh, you know, killings and and all this stuff. But rather, you know, you see the ineptitude when it comes to taking out Castro. Um, and where they're good at, they're good at propaganda. They're good at trying to sway the minds of the people, um, you know, to do their dirty work for them, like the, in the Guatemalan coup. Um, so I think that's where they excel do, doing their thing. But as far, you know, and then you kind of look at a plot like, killing kennedy you know was it the brightest idea whoever thought of this if it wasn't oswald to do this in broad daylight in front of a hundred in front of hundreds of people in a static location um you know at high noon while the president's driving down the street in a car you know who, who's whose plot is this you know what i mean like that this is your best idea you know, like you couldn't have somebody just come up and jab him in the ass with a, a heart attack, uh, you know, syringe while he's at Love Field, you know, shaking everybody's hand. I mean, that's some CIA shit, not what happened in Dealey Plaza. You know what I'm saying? If anything, they would have just had the Secret Service guy be like, hey, can you do me a favor, fake a heart attack and just drive into a tree? Right. They didn't have seatbelts. Kennedy was not wearing a seatbelt when that happened. I'm sure it wouldn't have taken much to co-opt one of his Secret Service agents to slip something in his drink or, you know, some top secret CIA shit, you know. But this is what happened. You know, Dealey Plaza happened. It didn't happen a different way where you eliminate the problem and there was maybe some a lot of questions that needed answered. But, you know, it could have looked natural or more natural than what it was. It didn't have to be a blow your head off murder in broad daylight at high noon in Dallas, Texas. It's just in so front of hundreds of people. It's so aggressive. Yeah, it's like the ultimate fuck you, you know? And for whoever was on that grassy knoll, because I believe somebody was up there. It's Woody Harrelson's father. No. no. I don't know where that conspiracy no. got in, but it's interesting. Well, that, that comes from Charles Harrelson's own mouth. But 
I don't think he was up there. Um, <laughs> I think he was trying to get out of a, a, a long jail sentence. Um, but I think somebody was on the grass. You know, I think the headshot came from the front left or front right. Um, and I think somebody was on the grassy you knoll, and whoever it was got away with it. They got away. Yeah. And whether or not they had help, uh, you know, along the way, or if they, you know, somebody stationed here turning people away, saying they were a Secret Service agent or, or a police officer or something, you know, hey, uh, don't come back here any further. You know, we, you know, uh, it's just, it's just crazy that somebody got away with it. If it wasn't Oswald, they got away with it, you know? Yeah. They had a chance to find who it was, but instead they rather pin the blame on someone. So, I mean, even if it is Oswald, if it's not Oswald, I think you just got to look at the things you can question and be able to, that's my whole thing is just don't lose the question aspect of things. I think um, what you do um, with your show, I got to get Doug on here at some point um, to talk about his as well too. And then it'd be cool to have you both on. I'd be have the both quick hits. Is, is it both of you guys quick hits and then you guys have your separates, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, where can people find your podcast, find quick hits and find um, anything else you want to promote? Uh, they can find them anywhere. Good podcasts are listened to. Um, they're pretty much on every platform out there. Um, if you don't have a podcatcher or something to listen to podcasts on, just Google it. It's on iTunes or whatever iPodcast it is now. I don't know. Um, I'm an Android guy. So, um, but yeah, anywhere that um, they can follow along on Twitter at the Lone Gummin 7 on Facebook, uh, the Lone Gummin Facebook page. Um, I've, I, I used to interact a lot more than I do now. Uh, my, my level for dumb shit or my tolerance for dumb shit has, has greatly lessened over the years. You know, I used to go on, you know, Facebook groups and forums and, and argue with people. And I finally realized, you know, that's a gigantic waste of time because you're never going to change anybody's mind on this. They have to come to their own realizations about the case. You know, if somebody believes that, that Mac Wallace and Loy Factor uh, were up on the sixth floor, you know, and while James Files is on the grassy knoll and Judy, ba Judy Baker's banging Lee Oswald on the first floor uh, bathroom at the time of the assassination, then that's what they're going to believe. And you can't change their mind. You know, it is what it is. So I, as my years have gone by, I, I, I kind of try to stay under the radar, do my own thing. And, you know, just let all the other stuff go because it, it can be very muddy waters out there. Um, you know, I tried for a long time to try to clean up some of the muddy waters and it's just, it's just not worth the effort anymore. So it's just, now I got the blinders on, I'm doing my thing. You want to listen? Great. If you don't, that's fine too. Um, but yeah, I've been blessed to be doing this for eight years. And dude, when I saw how many episodes you had, I was like, he had to start at like episode a thousand, right? I mean, this is, this is bullshit. But so I looked on the, the podcast feed and I'm going back. I'm like, no, this dude really has like 1300 episodes. Mm. And I'm like, this is insane. It's like one a day, like for the past four years, it's like, holy crap. So my hat's off to you, dude. That's insane. What you do as, as prolific as you've been doing it. Wow. 
insomnia helps insomnia helps um <laughs> but yeah it's i just started taking weekends off and i'm getting a little bit of crap for it but that's okay i just i like i, I don't really use my social either i post once a day and that's it I'll, I'll answer a message or something but you gotta limit make sure you don't spread yourself too thin and um especially you know once you enter like the jfk community it's just any tips for any new people i advise people to get interested in it i'm a i've gotten more of a historical perspective or just understanding and more fascination with it. And I think every researcher that I've talked to, every researcher like yourself and people who've talked to other researchers as well too, I value your guys' time. And there's always some of the best conversations because, you know, we can just talk and learn from each other of it. Um, but Rob, I'm going to link your links in the description, um, get you to your show recording and everything. But seriously, man, it's been a pleasure. You're welcome back anytime. Thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blind.